Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Welcome back from summer break. If that's the case for you, students, I'm sure it felt way too short to you, and Carol may not be sympathetic or compassionate at all, but I am. And then I know for some of you, it probably felt way, way, way too long, and so congratulations on making it through and being on the other side of it. Speaking of our students, um, if you weren't here last week, they shared truths from their week at student camp, uh, taught for a large portion of our teaching time the things God had been teaching them. And I've got two words for last week, whoa, mama. (laughs) It was so good. If you weren't here last week, get on the website and listen to the things that God's teaching them and the things they shared uh, with us. And our kids just got back from camp yesterday, and so it was a little short notice for the turnaround, but Teresa's talking to some of them, and they may have some things to share with us next week, and I don't know if they'll take the whole time or if it'll be five minutes, but we'll figure that out throughout the week, um, but you can be looking forward to that. And, and seriously, um, it was great. It was encouraging to hear the things that God is teaching our students and the ways that he's working uh, in their lives, and then to have them sharing that with us. Um, and I know if you were like me, there were things that he was saying to you last week that it was just, it was really good both for God to be speaking that way and then speaking through our students that way and just the spiritual growth that he's bringing about in their lives. And Eric and Adrian, thank you all for leading in that. Um, just keep praying for our students as they head back to school, that God would take these things he's teaching them and doing in them right now, that he'll use them. Uh, to, to reach their friends and reach other students and, and to make disciples the way that we pray wherever he has us all the time. Uh, that, there's an announcement in your bulletin too, just while I'm talking about it, about a good news club that Teresa is heading up, uh, getting started for us. And that's an opportunity for you once a week to go to one of our public schools. Uh, we'll be at WA Wright and actually lead a Bible study and teaching time with students that are staying after school for that Good News Club. It's a great, great opportunity. And if you're interested in that, Teresa's trying to put a team of volunteers together. And I would love for you to talk to her about that, get more information, and think about volunteering once a week uh, to take some of the things that we do here, encountering God and His Word and studying the Bible together and being out in the world and in our schools and with our students um, and doing that at WA Wright. So I hope that you'll pray about that and think about that and get in touch with Teresa if you want more information. And then um, one other thing, and this is connected to the students too, a few months ago I introduced you to some friends of mine, Josh and Selena Brown, who are headed to Italy this fall as uh, long-term missionaries with their two, two boys their whole family. They left yesterday uh, to go to Virginia for a two-month training. Uh, This is their last thing before they head to Italy, so they have sold their house. They have sold basically everything they own. Um, It's been been great walking through this with them and praying with them, but Josh gave me some prayer magnets uh, to hand out to the church, just that just a visual reminder if you keep it around the house to be praying for them uh, just in this two-month training and preparation and then the transition as they're moving to Italy and getting settled in. But I forgot those this morning. So I'm just telling you that they headed to Virginia yesterday, and I'm going to do my best to bring the magnets next week, um, and we'll, we'll get them to you next week. You can pray for them without the magnets, but the students were going to help us hand them out. Thanks for volunteering for that, and then I didn't bring them. Uh, my girls got back from camp yesterday, and we were a little bit running late on everything we did all morning. Maybe some of you camp parents understand that, but we, we made it, but we made it without the magnets, and that was my fault. So we don't have those today. 
All right, that's enough of all of that. We have spent several weeks um, in the book of Job on and off over the past couple of months, and we've wrapped that up. But I gave you homework three weeks ago, the last time I was up here. How many of you remembered to do your homework? Oh, no straight A's in here today. (laughs) That's all right. There's more important things than straight A's sometimes, right? No straight A's. All right. So your homework was, let's get outside the book of Job and let's look at this idea of suffering and the ways God uses suffering in our lives for good. We've talked a lot about, two weeks ago, Adam spent a whole week on redemption and how God takes things that are bad in and of themselves, things that even seem evil, wicked, sinful, things that are evil, wicked, sinful, and that in his wisdom and sovereignty and grace, he's able to work those in to his greater plan and purposes for good and bring good out of them and even turn them into things that are better than they could have been otherwise. And so, you know, one of the big things in the book of Job, you just don't read Job without wrestling with it, is the role of suffering in our lives and what it's like when God allows this type of suffering to come and what are the purposes. And so, you know, if you were going to title today, it would be something like Ways God Uses Suffering in Our Lives. Um, so all of our truths that I've got ready, you know, God uses suffering to, and then just fill in the blank. And, and I'm going to cover, cover several. I'm still going to give you a minute here. Even though you didn't do your homework, maybe you're one of those good off-the-cuff, last-minute kind of people. And so if you've got a couple to share as we start, we'll do that first. Um, but ways that God uses suffering in our lives, what he's accomplishing. And one of the things that I hope is we're always talking about the Bible being one big connected story and that every piece helps us understand other pieces. And I hope that your time in the book of Job with us helps you better see like when we go to these other places in the Bible and it specifically says, hey, God does this through suffering. I hope you see that from Job and how that better helps you understand Job and Job helps you better understand that piece. But then even more, how it helps you understand when you go through dark times when you are suffering, when you're the one struggling, when you're the one hurting, when you're the one grieving, when you're facing loss or disappointment or failure or pain in this life, and that huge question, really little question, it's only three letters, but biggest question we ever ask pops up in your mind, why? Why? Why this? Why me? Why would you let this happen? Why are you letting me go through this? Why haven't you done something yet? When that why pops up, I can't give you all the answers, but I think today we're going to see a lot of answers to that question, a lot of the things that God tells us, I'm doing this, and 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 you can trust me, and you can trust me, and you can look to me for this, and you can trust me for this, and you can ask me for this. So I hope it helps you connect Job and the rest of the Bible, but even more, I hope that God has things to say to you, to your heart, those moments when you feel like you're the one dying in the dark black hole. And you go, God, what are you doing? Why? And so that would be some of the answers I hope we see today. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to let you go first. If you do have stuff in mind, and if you're like, oh, I actually did do my homework, but you waited so long I forgot I did my homework, then that's fine too. Like you can still share stuff in these next 10 minutes or so, and then I'll jump in, and I will try to do a better job than I usually do of keeping us on time today. Okay, that's my my hope up front. I know I'm, I've just gotten so bad about that. I'm going to try to do better today. So here we go. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time right now. Please teach us by your spirit from your word 
as only you can. Open up the truth of your word to us and open us up to the truth of your word. In your grace, because of Jesus, we ask that right now you will help us to see you and know you and trust you and love you more than ever before. That you will cause our faith to keep growing and increasing. And that you will keep shaping and forming us by the Spirit of Christ who lives in us into more and more of the church that you want us to be into more and more of your people and your family who are called by your name. You're the only one who can do this type of deep, lasting, significant spiritual work in our hearts, Father. And so we come to you depending on you, needing you, asking you, trusting you, and thanking you even in advance because we know that you have promised these things in Jesus. And so we ask them in his name. Amen. All right, you first. If I ask the question, how does God use suffering or what does God use suffering for in our lives? Do you have any specific biblical passages that are really significant to you? And if you just want to shout it out and you want me to read it, that's fine. Go ahead. And I can put it on the screen if you want me to. Because it's my second one. Go ahead and pop that up there. And then, yeah, sure, read it. (laughs) Thank you for reading that. Do you want to say anything about that? Yeah, great. So several truths about God right there. And if you're watching online, just so that you can hear them, God doesn't leave us in our suffering. And I know you could actually take that to mean two different things. First of all, like when you're suffering, he doesn't leave. And he's not absent. He's there with you accomplishing things. These verses right here, we glory in our sufferings because we know here's the thing that God's doing while you're suffering. He's producing perseverance, and then that perseverance turns into a circle of character, and ultimately character turns into hope. And so God's at work as you're suffering, developing perseverance in you, that in the long run turns into character, that in the long run gives you a strength of character that allows you to hope in the work that he's doing. Um, so he doesn't leave you in the sense of being gone or absent. He's present and working, but also doesn't leave us in our suffering in the sense of the suffering is not the last word. It's not, this is going to last forever and ever. It's God's promise right here. No, I'm redeeming this, this hard thing. I'm turning it into something good, this really bad thing. I'm using it to bring about better things. And so this isn't the last word. He's not gone and he's not leaving you here forever. Now, it may feel really long. Really often it feels too long. Okay, and I know that. And, and us writing these words down doesn't mean that when you're suffering, it'll be like, okay, this is easy. I can. Ha-. It's suffering, right? Like, by definition, it's not going to be easy. And when it's not easy, there's going to come a moment when it feels way, way too long. 
And that's the moment when you grab hold of this truth and you're like, it doesn't feel like you're with me. It doesn't feel like you're working for good right now, but I believe you. I know what you've said. I believe what you've said in spite of what I feel right now. And your faith overrules your feelings in that moment and hopefully over time teaches your feelings to get in line. And even if your feelings don't get in line, your faith isn't based on your feelings. Your faith is based on what God has said. Your faith is based on who God is. So God doesn't leave us in our suffering, but God works through our suffering to build our character and I think the other way that you said it was make us more like him. And you certainly see this in verse 5 where and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us so that God's doing this work where his love, he's pouring his love into us and we are learning to love with his love. We're becoming more like him, that his spirit is living in us and this hope that he's producing in us ultimately is from him and by him and through him. Um, and so yeah, great start right here and we could spend a lot more time just on this but I want us to cover as many as we can. So another one, yeah. Um, so what Doug said there is that the context is Paul's suffering and preaching because of the word. Let's turn to Romans 5 because off the top of my head, I don't think that's where we are in Romans 5, but I may be the one that's wrong. Um, so let's look at it. Yeah, so... My understanding, and Doug, we can talk about this more after if you would like, or if anybody else has insights into this, like for the flow of the book of Romans, when you start at like 118, Paul lays out this idea that, hey, the wrath of God is on all of us because of our sin. And everyone's a sinner. And he starts with the argument of we should be able by this isn't a sermon on Romans, but here we go. <laughs> you should be able to look at creation and learn truths about the Creator. We should know about God's invisible qualities like His divine power. But all of us, because of our sin, have turned away from the Creator and turned to creation, whether that's things in the world that we love more than God or ourselves that we love more than God, and that we're all guilty of rejecting who God really is. And because of that, that, that argument, he builds it all the way to three, chapter 3, 23, where we get the verse that a lot of you probably know, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he pre precedes that with, there's no one righteous. No, not one. So he's laying the groundwork for why we need God to save us in Jesus. But he spends two whole chapters saying, because we've all destroyed ourselves. We've all rejected God. We have all made ourselves guilty before God and turned away from God in such a way that it would be just and righteous and holy for God to pour his wrath out on us. But then God does something that's utterly unexpected. If you if to look in Romans 3.20, when the flow, there's this, or 3.21, but now a righteousness from God has been revealed. And you think, well, if we're all sinners and God reveals his righteousness, he's going to judge us and condemn us in our sin. That's not good news. 
But the crazy thing is that no, a righteousness from God has been revealed apart from law. So it's not the law showing up to judge us. It's been made known to us through the law and the prophets. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus to all who believe. And so when the righteousness of God shows up, he doesn't judge us for our sin in this moment right here. He offers to us the righteousness of Jesus if we believe in him. That anyone who puts faith in Jesus, who does not have what they need to stand before God, who has rejected God and deserves God's wrath, instead of receiving that wrath from God, Jesus takes that wrath in our place, and then Jesus gives his righteousness to us, the thing that we don't have, the way that we could never be right with God on our own. Jesus makes us right with him. And so then Paul shifts, and he starts to explain what that means. For all of chapter 3, all of chapter 4, he's saying, so this has to be by faith and not by work. Because if it was by works, none of you could earn it. None of you. We've already proven that. That's why we're in the state that we're in. And so you believe in Jesus, and when you trust in Jesus, God credits, this is chapter 4, his righteousness to you, counts it as if it's yours, takes it from his account, and transfers it to yours. Or really the better analogy is he marries you to Jesus, and now you have a joint account together. And everything that's in Jesus' account belongs to you. And Jesus covers all the debts that were, you were bankrupt spiritually. And Jesus pays for all your debts. And then the things that you needed to be right with God, you share with Jesus. So then we come to chapter 5 after Paul's made that argument. And he says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, right, not by our works, we didn't earn it, we believed in Jesus, we trusted his work. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And so he's saying, because of what Jesus has done for us, when we are made right with God, we're able to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We know what's coming. Not only so, and this was the verse we picked up on today, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And so he's saying, you know, because of Jesus, we have this hope of the glory of God forever. That he's going to redeem and make new, glorified, resurrected bodies, perfect fellowship with him, um, in his presence, joy forever. But then Paul's like, but also... Until that comes, until that is fully done, even now in this broken, in this in-between time where God has started the process of redemption, but he hasn't fully finished it yet when Jesus returns in glorification and we're in between the two. We, we have the hope of what he's going to do, but we're still living with the reality right now of all this hasn't been fixed yet. There's still suffering. There's still pain. There's still mourning. He's like, even now we can rejoice in that because we know that these are some of the very ingredients that God's going to use to bring that about. And so for me, contextually, I say this is to everybody who believes in the gospel. Like as we read the flow of Romans, like he's addressing everyone who is a sinner, which is everybody, and then narrowing it in chapters 3 and 4 to those who have put faith in Jesus and have received the righteousness of Jesus. This is the hope that we have. Um, and I, we can't sit here all day, but we can chat after if you want to. The other reason I feel confident about that would be we'll get here later. But 2 Corinthians, Paul's talking about something similar here. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Like 
this word all and this word all and this word all, um, if you all were to do like an in-depth deep dive into the Greek of those words, do you know what all means there? Like literally what it actually means? All. <laughs> do you know what any means there? Every. Any, all of them. Right? Like he, he, and this is really comforting. Because we saw in Job, there can be a lot of sources of our suffering. Whether it's spiritual forces like Satan and demons, like they can be a source of our suffering. Whether it's the idea of sin, like capital S-I-N, you know, the force that was unleashed in the world when Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God. The thing that is twisted and polluted and distorted creation so that things don't work the way that God originally created them to work. Like that force brings suffering now, sickness and death and disease because of that. Or then lowercase s-i-n-s, sins, the things that you and I do that hurt other people and each other and ourselves. So other people's sin can bring suffering into your life. Your own sin can bring suffering into your life. And then we even saw ultimately, you know, God's sovereign purposes and wisdom in allowing this and ordaining these things to come so that you can say that on the ultimate level, God also is a source of suffering. You know, when he says, yeah, you can do this to Job. Yes, you can, go, you can cause this much suffering, but not this. Okay, you can cause this much, but not this. Uh, and the other one, you know, at one point it's a storm, a natural disaster that kills some of the people in Job chapter 1 and 2. And again, that's creation not being what God originally intended. So there's lots of causes of suffering. But this 2 Corinthians chapter here is very, very encouraging because it says, whatever it comes from, God's the God of comfort for you as you go through that. All comfort for all your troubles so that you can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort you've received from God. And so at the very least, I would say we've got places, 2 Corinthians 1 James 1 is another one that says this is an all-inclusive for God is saying when you suffer, when you struggle, when you grieve, when you hurt for any reason, I'm the God for you. I'm the God who's at work and using this and drawing you to me and my comfort is enough to cover that. Um, and if you're like me, you know, some of the worst suffering in my life has been self-inflicted. And... Um, probably the hardest place for me to believe the gospel is when I know that I've caused my own suffering, that it's my fault, and I think, well, I deserve this. Like, if there's anywhere that God's comfort isn't going to reach, it's here when it's my fault. Like, I, sh I should be suffering. I did this to myself. And words like this in 2 Corinthians 1 and some others we'll get to later is God saying to you this morning, to me, that's exactly what I'm here for. I know you've blown it. I know you've messed it up. I know it's your fault. We're not arguing about that. <laughs> I knew that when I sent Jesus. Like The things that you've blown are the things that Jesus came to redeem. The suffering that you've caused, the brokenness that you've brought about in your life are the places where Jesus came to heal you. And so sometimes, yes, some of these passages... You know, it could specifically be, hey, in this situation when you're suffering, this is here for you. But there's other passages that are definitely broader. My reading of Romans, I would say it's broader, but I'd love to hear what you think later um, if we have enough time. Anybody else have any thoughts on that, just real quickly? Yeah. 
Yes. Yeah, David's uh, repentance in Psalm 51 after his affair with Bathsheba and then murdering Uriah to cover it up. Um, And if you ever go back and and read it closely later this week, it's fascinating that... that, Here, we just got to do part of it real quickly because it's so... Perfect example. You are laughing because you know I'm already in trouble. Chapter, chapter 50, Psalm 51, verse 1, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Like it's already like, I know that I'm the one that blew it, and so my only hope is mercy from you, that your love never ends, that your love is unfailing. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. So he's not arguing. He's like, I know I did it. I know I'm guilty. I know this is my sin. But your great compassion, your mercy, your unfailing love gives me hope that I can come to you right now. And then listen to what he, listen to what he asks for. When David's the reason David is suffering. David's the reason David is guilty. David's the reason David is miserable. And this is his confession to God. But even his confession is asking God for things. It's not, hey, I really messed it up. So here's what I'll do to make it up to you. That is not what he says. Listen to this section right here. Let me hear joy and gladness. I'm suffering because of my sin. Restore joy and gladness to me. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. So it's not, hey God, I messed up, but I'll get myself right now. I'll make my, I'll make my heart so pure that you'll be proud of me and you'll accept me. That is not what he says. He's like, I messed up and I'm still messed up. Unless you create a pure heart in me, there's no hope for me. I need you. I need your work, not what I can do. So create a pure heart in me and, then, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. So you're the one also has got to give me the spirit that will stay steadfast in this, that you'll keep me in this, that you'll keep strengthening me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And so yeah, like certainly David brought this suffering on himself. And David is completely guilty and yet under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David shows us that you can take that to God. And you can come to God and say, I need your help. I need your healing. I need your rescue. I need your restoration. I need your comfort. I need you to deal with this in your mercy as only you can. And, you know, and if, if that is not excluded, like when it's your fault and you deserve it, and God's like, I'll still rescue you. I'll still comfort you. I'll still heal you. If that's not excluded, what is? Like, what else isn't he going to work in the middle of? He's like, I don't write you off when it's your fault. I'm certainly not going to write you off when it's not your fault. All right, any others you want to throw out that come to mind for you? So Cassie said, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel, when they're thrown into the fiery furnace because of their faithfulness to God. Like, so perfect contrast. David suffering because of his sin, 
and in his cover-up of his own sin, it's all his fault. And he comes to God and he asks for mercy and healing and restoration. And God's like, that's the kind of prayer I want in my Bible. I want my people to learn to pray to me this way when it's their fault. So that end. Now here we have guys so faithful to God that they're like, you can throw me in the furnace and burn me to death and I will not bow down to you. I only worship God. So this is not their fault at all. And in this case, God steps into the suffering with them, right? This fourth figure, one like the sons of God, the angel or pre-incarnate Christ, depending on the way people interpret it, but in there with them, protects them, sees them through the suffering, and then brings them to the other side of the suffering for his own glory. That, that a pagan king who does not believe in God would then declare, this is the true God. <laughs> right? So both great truths. God uses our suffering to deliver us. God uses our suffering for his glory. One more that you all want to throw out. Ooh, two more that you all want to throw out. Genesis 16. So what, what truth would you like to point us to? And I can read some of it if you want me to look at something specific. Yeah, so um, Genesis 16 is the story of Hagar and Ishmael. And, you know, if you, if you know the bigger story or if you're not familiar with it, I'll be as fast as I can right here. God shows up to a guy named Abraham and makes this huge promise of I'm going to turn your family into my people, like my nation on earth that I'm going to use so that all the people in the world will learn who I am. The only problem is Abraham has zero children and he doesn't own any land. It's like the two things you got to have to be a nation, right? A lot of people and a lot of land, and Abraham has none of it. But God makes these promises. I'm going to give you more descendants than you can count. I'm going to give you this land that he sends him to. It, that this is going to be yours. It's going to belong to your descendants. Well, Abraham's getting older, and none of that's happened yet. And his wife has been barren their entire life. You know, they're... 80s and 90s now, like way past childbearing years, the way that, that Romans says is that her womb was already dead. <laughs> like it's done. She's not having kids. And God shows up again in Genesis 15, and Abraham asks some of these why questions, like why haven't you done what you said? Why haven't you given what you promised? How can this be if you don't do this? And Genesis 15 ends with God making the promises again and entering into a covenant with Abraham. And Keith taught on this several months ago. It's a great Sunday morning sermon if you want to go back and look up Genesis 15 because God's the only one who enters into the covenant. It's a one-sided covenant where God's like, here's how you know it's going to happen because I promised. And it all depends on me. And it doesn't depend on you at all. And in Genesis 16, we figure out why that's such good news. Because the next thing Abraham and Sarah do is they launch their own plan about how they'll help God as if God needs their help. And so Sarah says, here, take my maidservant and have a kid with her, and that can be the kid. And so that's where we get Hagar's the maidservant, Ishmael is the son that's born. And it's completely against what God's just promised. Like it's a, a complete lack of faith in this moment in the promise. But what ends up happening is that when Hagar and uh, 
Sarah have all kinds of stuff going on between them now, between jealousy and envy and pride and you know, boasting, that sort. You can imagine what the dynamic is. And so Sarah drives her away, and she's suffering. And God, like, this isn't even, I mean, and you're right, like, this isn't, as far as what God spoke to Abraham, this isn't part of God's plan, if you want to say it that way. And God shows up, and he comforts Hagar, and he comforts Ishmael, and he saves them. He provides for them. Like, in this moment of suffering, the lesson that she learns, verse 13, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. I have now seen the one who sees me. And in that moment, God taught her something. He used her suffering to teach her something about himself. I see you when you're suffering. I see what you're going through, and I care, and it matters to me. And so God shows up again 12, 13, 13 years later to Abraham. He's like, hey, I know you blew it, but I'm still keeping my promise. <laughs> I, I never asked you to give me a son, but I'm still going to give you a son. I promised I would give you one. So he's walking through this promise again to Abraham. And uh, he, he re repeats it. Says, I'm going to give you a son through Sarah. This is verse 17. Here's how strong Abraham's faith is. Abraham fell face down. He laughed. <laughs> Has God ever repeated a promise to you and taken so long to fulfill it that the next time you hear it, you just start laughing? And you're like, yeah, right, I've heard that before. He said to himself, will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. This is so good. God made a promise. Abraham didn't believe enough to hold on. So he goes and Ishmael exists because of Abraham's sin and unbelief. God shows up and makes the same promise. And instead of Abraham saying, okay, I believe you, he's like, just use Ishmael. Like this thing's not happening with Sarah. Will you please just take my sin and bless it? What does God say? Get ready. This is not your typical church answer. Abraham says, will you please take my sin and bless it? Then God said, yes. Didn't see that coming, did you? <laughs> yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son. Fine. You blew it. I'll bless, I'll bless the way you blew it. But also, I'm still going to do what I said. <laughs> and it's going to be better than even when I bless this. And you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. Do you know the extent of grace right there? Like it's not even just, hey, you blew it so you don't get the promise, you don't get Isaac. Like, isn't that what we expect? Is that not what we would do? I made you a promise. You didn't believe me. Forget it. You don't get it anymore. And God's like, no, I made you a promise. You didn't believe me. Guess what? I made the promise. It depends on me. I'm still going to do it. And this thing that happened when you didn't believe me, my grace is big enough for that too. And so, yeah, in this story of Genesis 16, of Hagar, Ishmael, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, you can see God working through all kinds of mess, things that are their fault, things that aren't their fault. And, you know, and it gets mixed up really fast, and you try to point fingers, and you're like, is that Sarah's fault? Is that Abraham's fault? Is that, is that Ishmael's fault? Is that Hagar's fault? It doesn't matter. 
in one sense. God's grace is big enough for all of it, and he's still at work, and none of it stops what he's doing. And again, this is encouraging, and it's comforting. And, and listen, there's no doubt that a lot of suffering came about in their lives because Abraham and Sarah didn't believe God. And I would encourage you, when God speaks to you, believe him. That you will bring suffering on yourself when you don't believe him. It is true. You won't bring suffering on yourself in such a way that he won't come back and still be your God and be gracious to you. Both those things are true. One more. We had one more. Somebody was... Jesus goes to those in suffering and relieves it for God's glory. That's a great truth. We're going to get to two different quick passages in just a minute that illustrate this. Um, And so we'll just connect it into where we're headed. But just like... When Jesus gives some of the most overarching statements about his whole ministry, he says things like, hey, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. He's like, I came for the ones who are suffering the most, sinning the most, broken the most, the most outcast, the most needy, the most helpless. I'm here to serve them. I'm here to heal them. I'm here to save them. And then he demonstrates it over and over and over, both in the people that he calls as his apostles, as his disciples, the people that he heals, the people that he loves that nobody else will love, the people that he associates with that makes the religious people despise him. Just over and over and over, you see him seeking out people who are suffering for a wide variety of reasons and loving them and having compassion on them and caring for them and their suffering, their pain matters to him. And the way that he loves them is ultimately for the glory of God, that it reveals more of who God is. It shows us the love that God has for us when we suffer. It shows us the compassion that God has, the care that God has, the the way that God heals It shows us the way that God works in the middle of suffering. So over and over and over, Jesus shows us more of who God is in response to suffering. And anytime you see who God is, that's to God's glory. God's glory is basically all these things that are true about God all the time, that have always been true about God, when they're made known and people see it, that's his glory. It's the expression of all the things that he is. He's always been all those things from all eternity past. But he declares those things and shows those things and demonstrates those things and lives those things out. And then we praise him for being those things. And so Jesus is constantly showing us who God is so that we will glorify God for who God is. All right. You may have a hundred more. And if you do, shoot me an email this week. Like if you're like, hey, there's other things I want to cover related to this, and we can do another week later. Like I, I know that this is like the biggest chunk we could ever take. But I'm going to try to run through a few quickly that tie in probably to everything we've said just so you can go to specific places the next time you're suffering, and you're like, hey, here's a list of times when God speaks about this in the Bible. But the first one I want to give you isn't about suffering. It's Romans 11, 33 through 36. I think it's just important that we say this. Paul says, this is actually when we were talking about Paul laying out the gospel for the whole first 11 chapters of Romans. This is the conclusion he comes to after he has tried his absolute best under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to explain to us the work of God in Jesus. Here's the last thing he says about it. 
Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And basically what Paul is saying there is, hey, after I've spent 11 chapters trying to explain all this to you, and I hope you understand everything that I've said to you, just know this, there's still more to God. You dig down deeper, God's still there. You scale the highest heights, God's still there. You go as far as you can in this direction, and God's over there. You turn around, backtrack, and go as far as you can in that direction, and God's still there. And you won't ever get to the end of the fullness of this story of his grace and love that he's shown us in Jesus. And so that's specifically what he's talking about there. But I want to also say that that's true for everything that I'm about to say about suffering. Like, I can give you some answers. I can point you to some places in the Bible that say, here's one of the things God is doing. Here's one of the things God is doing. You can see this. You can understand this. But also, like, I don't want to begin to act like I can solve the whole thing for you. That we get to the bottom and like, this is everything God's doing. There's always more. It's always better. He's always wiser. You can trust him even beyond just what we say this morning. And sometimes in the middle of your suffering, it feels really trite for somebody like, well, here's why this is happening. Those are the reasons. You see that? You good now? <laughs> and, and so there's a place where I just want to say, you know what? When none of the answers satisfy you, it's okay. Because God goes deeper than those answers. And God goes higher than those answers. And God goes farther than those answers. And however far you think you need to go for God to comfort and satisfy your heart, he's already there. All right, so I, I'm not trying to act like we can tackle this on a Sunday morning and just never again will it be hard for you when you suffer. It'll be hard every single time you suffer. And God will be there with you in it. And God will have purposes for it. And God will have a wisdom and a knowledge and an understanding and a plan that goes beyond your wildest dreams. And every time he shows you a piece of it, and someday when he shows us more fully and clearly than we've ever seen before, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments. His paths beyond tracing out. This is worship. This is a response to God's greatness and God's mystery that stirs up worship in Paul. So, quickly, uh, I'm just going to mark and say them. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And here you go again. Like, obviously, not a limited idea, but many different types of trials, many different sources. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And this is really similar to our Romans passage, but just see here that God allows you to go through trials to develop perseverance in you. As perseverance grows inside of you, you grow in maturity, you become more complete spiritually, not lacking anything. This is a weird way to think about it, but when God lets you suffer, it's because he's trying to give you things that you need. There are things that you lack that right now in this world spiritually, the best way I know how to explain it is that suffering is the only way we receive it. And God is wanting to give you those things because you need them. And he says, hey, if suffering is the medicine it takes, to get this type of perseverance, this type of character, this type of hope in me, 
it's worth it. And we'll see more of the examples here in a second. So, ways that God uses suffering to produce perseverance, to make us more mature and complete so that we won't lack anything spiritually. We already looked at Romans 5, but I'm going to read it again. We also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And so again, really, really similar, but the chain there, you know, that suffering produces perseverance. You know, the only way, as far as I understand, that you can learn to persevere is to have to persevere through something, right? It's not one of those things you get otherwise. If, if every day I try to go run a mile and after a minute I'm out of breath and I don't persevere once I'm out of breath, you know what I'm never going to do? Run a mile, <laughs> right? If I stop after a minute, I'm never... Like, you, you have to persevere through the physical pain to get to the point of there's less physical pain. Like it's how your body learns to persevere. And there's something similar here going on spiritually where God said, I want you to learn perseverance. I've got to give you situations that teach you perseverance, that cause you to persevere. Now, it's in the chain here. Perseverance produces character. I think the emphasis on character, what's really significant there, is that it's one of the hints that fits with the whole story of the Bible where God's saying, I want more from you than a certain type of behavior. I want you to become a certain type of person. I want to actually develop your character into this type of person, not just change the way you behave. Your behavior will change as your character changes, but it's possible to do all kinds of behavior stuff on the outside and your character never change. And I was trying to think of just a good illustration for you. When I was in first, second, and third grade, um, my mom had me take piano lessons. When I was in first, second, and third grade, my mom made me take piano lessons. All right, I didn't want to do it, but I did it. And I could play the piano after a while. Like I, I would go to my lesson, I'd do what she told me. I had to keep a little sheet where I practiced 15 minutes every day. Mom would set the timer on the oven. I couldn't get up till it went off. I had to log it in the sheet that I'd done, and I did what they told me to do. I could play the piano. I was never a piano player. Like it never became who I was. I didn't want to be in there. I didn't want to play when I didn't have to. I never played on my own. As soon as my teacher quit, it was like, this is my way out. <laughs> Now, when I was in first grade, I also started playing basketball. And when I wasn't practicing intramural basketball, and I wasn't even any good. Like I, I didn't take a shot the entire first season I played. Like not just I didn't score a point, I did not shoot the ball for a whole season. But every time I was home, I was out in the, the garage with my UK basketball. I was dribbling. I was learning how to dribble with my left hand. I was shooting layups. I'd play for four hours after school, and I would get in trouble because I was supposed to come in for supper, and I wouldn't come in when I was told to. I, I may not have been a very good basketball player yet, but I was a basketball player. But do you see that I, I could play the piano, but I wasn't a piano player. I couldn't play basketball very well, but I was a basketball player. That's the idea of character. God's saying, I know that you can't follow Jesus very well yet, but you are a follower of Jesus. That is your identity, and I'm going to keep building that in you, developing that in you. And there's a world of difference between that versus, hey, I'm a pretty good religious person. Do you see the things I do? But you can do those things, and it never become who you are. I could play the piano every day for three years. It never became who I was. 
But over here, like this, even when I wasn't good at it, it's already who I was. Do you see that? And so I think that's exactly what's going on in Romans here where he's saying that God is teaching you perseverance because he's shaping your character because your character, your heart, your identity, who you are, that's what he's concerned with. He wants you to be his. He's concerned with who you are on a deeper level than just what you do. And so I think one of the ways to get to that level in this life, a lot of times it requires suffering, a, drill, a drilling down, a working in us that doesn't come easily. But then as that character develops, as you really grow as a follower of Jesus, as that defines you, that produces hope. Right? Now there's a hope in Jesus because you're knowing more of who Jesus is. Your relationship with him is deepening. You're experiencing his work in your life. You're seeing his goodness. You're also seeing your desperate condition without him. You know, the best way for you to know that Romans 1 through 3 is true, really try to follow Jesus this week. Try your best to be who you're supposed to be and be honest about how far your heart is from that. But you start to see who you really are apart from him. And you start to see who he really is. And you trust him more. And you know you need him more. And you learn to rely on him more. And then as you find that he's everything he promises he would be, your hope in him grows. So that's some of what's going on there in Romans 5, 3 through 5. John 9. We looked at this story a while back. It's the man born blind. Um, I think Adam taught this one. And it ties right into what Adam said here, his truths. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. This is a great tie-in to Job where we're like, hey, this really simple equation of if you sin, bad things happen to you. If bad things are happening to you, it's because you sinned. Jesus says, no, it's not that simple. Like if you need a place where as clear as day, Jesus says that is not the only explanation for suffering. Right here it is. Jesus is like, this man didn't do something to cause his blindness. His parents, it's not punishment for his parents. That's not what's going on. God has a bigger plan in mind. So God uses suffering to display his works in your life. That, that suffering, in a sense, is the black canvas that God's about to put a really bright white painting on. And the contrast makes the whiteness, the brightness, stand out all the more. That, that part of God's work is healing. There are things that need to be healed. Part of God's work is redeeming. There are things that need to be redeemed. Part of God's work is forgiving. There are things that need to be forgiven. And all of those things in and of themselves, the things that need to be healed, redeemed, forgiven, they're bad in and of themselves, right? They're sources of suffering. But when God gets his hands on them and he displays his work in them and he heals them and he redeems them and he forgives them and he restores them and he resurrects them, the work of God's displayed through these very things that by themselves were bad. So, God uses suffering in your life to show his work in your life. John 11. Uh, did you do this one too, Adam? <laughs> the resurrection of Lazarus. Um, now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This, Martha. this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. 
No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. And so God uses suffering in your life for his glory, which is exactly what Adam said right here. And of course, what ends up happening in this story is Jesus allows the sickness to escalate to the point of death because the glory that he intends to give to God in this particular story is resurrection from the dead. And, and that may be one of the best ways for you to see it. The only way that you get the joy and celebration of resurrection is if death precedes it. You can't have resurrection without death. Death is necessary for resurrection. So here's the suffering, the worst suffering you can imagine. And yet God says, this sets the stage for the best work I can do. This sets the stage for my glory. And so I want to encourage you that when you bring your suffering to God, when you're putting it in his hands and you're saying, I trust you with it, that he has purposes in mind that are for his glory. He has ways that he works to redeem, that there more glory results for God in redeeming your suffering than if your suffering hadn't happened. Right, if Lazarus never gets sick, as much glory as a resurrected Lazarus, or if Jesus shows up day one and heals him, we know that's great, he healed a lot of people, but as much glory as a resurrection, like, do you see what God does here? We're like, yeah, like the, the suffering got really bad. It's almost like there's a scale here of the deeper down it goes in the suffering, the higher up it goes in the glory. And I'm not trying to give you a mathematical formula, but you see what I mean. Like this much suffering, God redeems it, you're probably this thankful. This much suffering, God redeems it, you're probably this thankful. This much suffering, God redeems it, you're probably this thankful. The more you have seen the darkness of the suffering, the more you glory in the light of God's glory when he reveals it. All right, 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11. There's so much, but we've got to go fast, so just stick with me. This is Paul. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Like, you want to describe suffering? We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened, so why? I mean, they're serving God. He's on a missionary journey. He's planting churches. He's preaching the gospel to people who've never heard the name of Jesus before. Why in the world would God allow him to suffer beyond his ability to endure? Which, by the way, I know a few weeks ago I threw an offhanded comment to you that this idea that God will never give you more than you can bear is not in the Bible. Here's evidence, right? Paul says, we suffered beyond our ability to endure. But this happened. Why? That we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He's delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. And so the main point here, one of the ways God uses suffering in your life is so that you will stop relying on yourself. That's not the end of it. Why does he want you to stop relying on yourself? So that you will start relying on him. And the illustration that popped in my mind, both of my girls uh, were pacifier girls. Um, and, and that's my fault. It wasn't Christy's fault. Like, I was a pacifier kid. 
Matter of fact, my parents had to take me to Disney. I, I traded my pacifier for a Disney trip, and I regretted it. Like, <laughs> pacifier was so much better than Disney. Um, but both of our girls were pacifier girls, and there came this moment where we had to cause some suffering, right? We had to take the thing. We had, we had to clip the end of it. It was like they were going to find that thing and go back to town on it. We had to cause some short-term suffering, but the reason was we were teaching them to not rely on that pacifier anymore. The biggest pacifier in your entire life, there, there's lots of them spiritually, by the way, I've got a lot more than you could ever imagine. You've got a lot more than I could ever imagine. But the biggest pacifier in your life is yourself. Self-reliance, self-centeredness, self-satisfaction, self-seeking, selfishness, self-righteousness, especially for religious people. And God's like, it's time to clip the tip off that pacifier. I've got to break you of relying on yourself. How can he do that? Giving you things you can't handle yourself. Bringing you to the point where you know this is too much for me. Like almost in a sense forcing you to confess, I can't do this. And then when he breaks you of yourself, you find that reliance on him is better than reliance on yourself ever was anyway. You know, the rest of what God, Paul goes through here is like, now we're relying on the person who raises the dead. We didn't even have the power to deal with this persecution we were facing, and we stopped relying on ourselves. God has the power to raise people from the dead. What a great trade this is. He's like, he has delivered us. He'll keep delivering us. Now we have this hope that he'll always deliver us, like forever and ever. I've traded self-reliance on somebody who couldn't deliver me at all for God-reliance on somebody who will deliver me forever. And as you all pray, now God is increasing the thanksgiving that's given to him. Like, when it was clear that I couldn't do it, but God did it, then all these people who were praying praised God when it got done. They didn't praise, so here's God's glory increasing again because God delivers Paul from something Paul could never do for himself. And so it, God uses suffering so we wouldn't rely on ourselves, so we would rely on God to show us that he can deliver us, to teach us to trust him to deliver us again in the future, to set our hope on him, to teach us that prayer matters, to multiply thanksgiving, and to increase our appreciation for grace. And I know that's way too fast, but it's where we are right now. Then we go right back up just a few verses earlier, and this, we looked at this earlier. But praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Why did Paul, God let Paul go through this suffering and then comfort Paul and deliver Paul? Not just for Paul's sake but so that Paul would receive that comfort from God and then become a source of that comfort to others. Like almost always, you will become more compassionate for people who are suffering when you've been through that type of suffering. Almost always, like, like if you're going to be compassionate. <laughs> now, you can get hardened by your suffering. You can get more selfish and self-protective and you can turn away from the things of God. You can ignore his purposes in your life. But I'm saying when there is a strong compassion and sympathy and empathy growing in you, it usually comes out of a place of, I know what it's like to go through that. I know what it's like to hurt that way. I know what it's like to blow it that way. I know what it's like to be in that place. And I know how God comforted me and how he used people to comfort me. And I want to be that in your life now. 
that God uses the mess in your life to create the ministry that he intends for you. God redeems the biggest suffering in your life and then uses it as a source of comfort, not just for you, but for others who suffer in that way. That any time you can point and say, this was hard, it was beyond what I could endure, and God saw me through it and God comforted me. If you can point to something and say that, I can tell you right now, God did that so that you will comfort others in that way. So be looking, be asking, God, who is it? Who is it that's suffering the way I've suffered? How can I love them the way you've loved me? How can I be there for them the way you've been here for me? How can your love and life and comfort live through me for their sake? We don't have time. We just don't. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul's given a thorn in the flesh, and he says, I would have been tempted to boast in all the, good, like all the gifts and the position God had given me, but in order to keep me from becoming conceited, God has let me suffer. I was given a thorn in my flesh. One of the ways God will use suffering in your life is to protect you from pride and arrogance. It's really closely related to breaking you of self-reliance. But this place of that he will give you things you can't handle on your own so you don't become too confident in yourself on your own. He will give you things that either you'll rely on him or you can't handle it so that you'll learn to rely on him and not on yourself. Paul begs God to take it away, and God says, I'm not going to because my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God will let you suffer to teach you that his grace is enough for you. God will let you suffer to reveal how weak you actually are so you'll start to trust his power instead of your own. God will let you be weak so that his power will be shown in your life and not your own power. So that you will depend on him. Joseph, we talked about Joseph a couple of weeks ago, but this statement to his brothers, you know, after they've sold him into slavery, he's been a, he's been a slave, and then he gets uh, unjustly imprisoned, and he's in prison for several years, but then God uses him to rescue Egypt and basically the whole known world from a seven-year famine. His brothers realize how powerful he is now. They're afraid that he's going to seek revenge. He says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. Like all these bad things you did, they're really bad, but God intended it, and it is everything I've just said. He takes all that terrible, awful, evil stuff, all the suffering that Joseph has been through, God intended it for good. And so God uses suffering for his good purposes. And then even more, what Joseph specifically has in mind, to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. God's good purposes, like he uses suffering for his good purposes, God uses suffering for his greater purposes of redemption and salvation. Like he works good out of it, but then he also does something great where he's redeeming the whole situation and saving people. And for God's work in more lives than just your own. But do you see that again here? God had, God had a plan that went far beyond just the life of Joseph. And God working in and redeeming Joseph's suffering was about way more than just Joseph. And I just like, your life is intended to be about way more than just you. This church is intended to be about way more than just us. That God has done a redemptive and saving work in you and in us so that he can work it for good in the lives of many people. That he would use us to make disciples, use us to point people to Jesus. So don't ever stop and think when God redeems something in your life that's just for you or about you. 
All right, last passage for the morning. I still want us to end here. It's going to lead us into worship. And so think about what God says right here. And let, let your suffering and your struggles be seen in light of this word from God. Because here's the deal. Everything that God has done or will do through your suffering is a shadow and an echo and a reminder of the greatest thing he's ever done through suffering. What he's done through Jesus' suffering transcends all of our suffering. What he's done through Jesus' suffering defines and sets the context for all of our suffering. And this is, this is a prophecy about Jesus from Isaiah 53. And look at this right here at the beginning. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. That God the Father chose for Jesus to suffer. Why? There's so many reasons that get listed in these verses. And I'm just going to try to go through them really quickly right now. Though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin... He will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And so God uses Jesus' suffering as an offering for sin. God uses Jesus' suffering to justify you, make you right with God. God uses Jesus' suffering to bear your sin, bear your iniquity. God uses Jesus' suffering to make him an intercession for, intercessor for you when you're a sinner, that he would speak to God on your behalf. And then we back up a few verses before, talking about Jesus again. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. God uses Jesus' suffering to bear your suffering. Jesus suffers for you in your place. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. So he was punished. He suffered so that you can receive peace. God uses Jesus' suffering to give you peace, and by his wounds, we are healed. God uses Jesus' suffering to heal you. On a morning when we're talking about suffering, the way God uses suffering, it would not be appropriate to end without saying this. Jesus is the better sufferer. Jesus has accomplished more in his suffering than all of us combined. Jesus has shown the glory and character of God more through his suffering than all of us combined. The rest of us, we're part of the source of suffering. Our sin has contributed to it. Jesus never contributed to it. Jesus never deserved to suffer. There was never any question of did he bring this on himself. And yet he suffered more than any of us. Take all the suffering that all of us experienced in our entire life to this point. It does not match the full wrath of God against sin that we talked about in Romans 1 being poured out on Jesus on that moment on the cross when the sky goes dark and the Father doesn't answer. He suffers to an extent that we could never comprehend. Jesus is the greatest sufferer. And he suffered for you and he suffered for me. And he suffered willingly.
And he took all of your suffering and he wrapped it up in his and he took it to the grave. And when he came back to life, he makes this promise that he's going to redeem all of it. He's still at work. He's still accomplishing that. And a day's coming when he's going to fulfill it forever. And that's our hope. That's what we hope in right now. And so see Jesus. See Jesus suffering for you. See the love of God in Jesus suffering for you. And in those moments when it feels like, how can, this be, how can this be part of God's plan? I don't always understand. I don't have those answers for you sometimes. But I promise you that a God who's done that for you and handled that for you, he can handle whatever else you have going on in your life. You can trust him. You can go to him. He sees you. He knows you're there. He cares. He loves you. He has comfort for you. And I pray that you'll trust him in that way so that you glorify him all the more, both in your suffering and in the ways he heals and redeems. So let's pray right now and let's worship him together. Father, thank you for this time. Please teach us by your spirit right now in a way that my words never can. My words are so inadequate for what we are talking about. But your spirit, your grace, your power, they are sufficient for us. So please do what only you can do and stir up in us the type of worship that you deserve. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you'd like to pray with somebody, we're going to have a few people down here at the front to pray with you, talk with you about anything that's going on in your life, about trusting and following Jesus or struggles that you're having. That's what we're here for. We'd love for you to come down there during this time, but stand and sing with us. <laughs>